You're listening to the Elephant in the Room Property Podcast, where the big things that never get talked about actually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent, and co-host of Fox Hills Location, Location, Location Australia. And I'm Chris Bates, financial planner, mortgage broker, and wealth coach. And together, we're going to uncover who's really making the decisions when you buy a property. In this episode, we're going to talk about one of our favourite topics, and that's property data. We've had a guest on here for the second time, and the reason why is it's such an important conversation, and we need to keep picking and digging into data to help you make better property decisions. The reality is data can be so confusing, and if you don't know how to look at it and what not to include, you're going to make a big mistake. So please listen on. With AVMs, one of the biggest risks at the moment. Uh, Machine learning offers some fantastic opportunities, but the downside is we've got a a flurry of people who um, might be experts in machine learning without any domain knowledge in property, and they're throwing in the whole nation into one big bucket, one big database, and letting the model train itself for a couple of days, and spitting out what look like pretty good results. But the problem is it fits some models and some results that are rather opaque at best, you know, black box, I call it, and there's some crazy results that come out. Please stick around for this week's Elephant Rider Bootcamp. And we have a cracking Dumbo of the Week coming up. Before we get started, everything we talk about on this podcast is general in nature and should never be considered to be personal financial advice. If you're looking to get advice, please seek the help of a licensed financial advisor or buyer's agent. They will tailor and document their advice to your personal circumstances. Now let's get cracking. We're back talking about data in this episode. And as you know, we find it endlessly fascinating how research can be used and abused by pretty much every aspect of the property industry. But why does this matter? Well, it matters because some people make life-changing decisions as a result of it. Others ignore it, while yet others actively seek out data that supports their own version of events. Headlines, screams, statistics, they'll talk of increases in percentage terms and decreases in dollar terms. And when it comes to property, more often than not, they're relying on a single source of data that is rarely interrogated and often misleading. Put simply, property decisions carry consequences and smart buyers, both investors and owner occupiers, will invest in appropriate research, which begs the question, where can we go for meaningful data and how can we recognise the opposite? Who better to guide us through these murky waters than our returning geek with a personality, Kent Lardner. Kent was our guest back in episode six, and I highly recommend that you go back and listen to that episode if you find this one interesting, which I am certain you will. And for those of you who don't know who Kent is, he's one of the creators of PriceFinder, and throughout his career, he's been at the forefront of using tech to improve decision-making around property. And most recently, he's launched a new website called Suburb Trends, and I'm sure we're going to find out all about that very shortly. Welcome, Kent, and thank you again for joining us. Thank you, Veronica. Thanks, Chris. I've been invited back a second time. Usually, that's to apologise. So, oh, <laughs> good to have you on here, Kent. You know, you are our first second guest, by the way. So that's yes. that's an honour. That's great. Thank you. Yeah. It's yeah. not going to be something we usually do, but we thought it was important to get you on because. Um, I guess on Saturday I was uh, driving, I think it was Saturday, I was on Sunday, it was Mother's Day, and we are driving back from Mother's Day brunch, and I had Scott Morrison, you know, saying his new pitch around 5% deposits, and I was screaming at the, the, the radio, <laughs> being a madman, and saying, you don't get it, doesn't make sense, you know, et cetera. So I'd love for you to tell us a bit of a story. When you read media, or you hear something in the media, or you see something, 
Can you tell us a time when you actually just started screaming and just said, look, you guys do not get it? Oh, that's every day now. <laughs> I mean, there's there was one I saw on, uh, I, won't pull, I won't call out the name of the site, but it's one of the big investor websites. You know, um, and they said, these are the top five performing suburbs. Oh, and and one, oh, of them was, one of them was Balmain East. Now, I like to go back because mm. that's, you know, home, the old home ground, but it said like 41 or 43% growth in the last yep. 12 months. Mm. But they, they worded it in terms of it was um, you know, home price growth mm. and it mm. wasn't the change in the media. And then I, I pulled up the chart, the distribution chart, now, which I always kind of like to refer to the old bell-shaped curve, uh-huh. you know, yep. normally distributed. Um, and it was six or seven sales above $3 million in mm. Balmain East and then three or four sales down below $2 million. So you could just see it was all skewed to this $3 million plus end of the market. Yep. And they're saying that the houses in Balmain East, effectively the headline read, every house in Balmain East has just jumped by 40% plus in the oh, last 12 months. Uh, now, yep. if you scratch the surface, you say, hang on, that doesn't make a lot of sense. Everybody's talking doom and gloom and the housing prices are flat and whatnot. What the hell are you do, what, doing saying it's grown by 40%? Oh, they should know better. They should know better. And and not only that, but Balmain East, and I know this very, very well, it's a very small suburb, mm. very a handful of sales. So for starters, you've got a problem with the statistical significance of the amount of data, right? So you've only got a handful of sales. So you want to have, what, at least 100 sales to make it statistically significant? What would you say? Would well, be- I always like to work with a sample of around 40. Now, right, okay. now that sample size, and I think we even covered this in episode one, but if mm. I'm repeating myself, that's okay because it's it. been a few months, right? Yeah. So typically the, the number that you've got in your sample is relative to the shape of the distribution. Yeah. So mm. it's a really tight distribution. You can get away with a smaller amount. But mm. usually what you find is um, you, if, if it's a, a wobbly distribution, yep. you need to get out and get the numbers a bit bigger before it starts to take a meaningful shape. And when you say wobbly, and, and Balmain East is a great example, is because you will go from having a tiny little worker's cottage right up to a waterfront, harbourfront um, home. Yeah. And so if you get a bunch of harbourfront homes happen to sell or a bunch of tiny little uh, workers' cottages, you're going to be skewed in one end or the other. It's going to make it look like the whole market's going up or down, which is actually not. And and, and that varies. So it's really, it's a composition issue. It's, yes. it's what's selling is, you know, so, you know, the headline probably should read is, hey, there's been a stack of really expensive sales in the last 12 months. Which is that, that's all it means. <laughs> that's all it means. Yeah, yeah. And, and so I, I think across the board, though. That, but that's lazy, isn't it? It is lazy, but it's about headlines. And, mm. I, and I, that's what's really driving me nuts at the moment. So, Christy, your point, I'm shouting out and screaming every day. Yeah, I mean, it just reminds me of a time last year. And it's, it's one thing the media doing it. And then it's someone using that media article and then creating a point of view and saying, look, I told you so. Or look, this is where to invest. So they're using bad data and then telling people that they should be doing something. And I guess one thing, you know, I guess Veronica and I both, you know, I guess got a bit annoyed was a chap called Matt Barry um, last year. And, um, you know, he's the the CEO. He started, you know, an outsourcing online business called Freelancer. He lives in Singapore, I think. Um, And all of a sudden he's this kind of property doomsdayer. And, um, you know, it was a very similar article, but it was in the other vein. Um, Massive falls. Yeah. And um, mm-hmm. it was, you know, to McMahon's point or Milson's point, yeah. one of those a premium high-end apartment market, very small, um, and, you know, the data was showing that that market had fallen 22% in a year. 
And the reality is it hadn't really. It's actually a highly desirable suburb that's doing quite well, but there was just not that many sales. Yeah. And those sales are under. And so I guess when we, we see these data is, you know, we've kind of got to, even if someone else is referring to it, we've kind of got to say, well, where are they getting their data from? Yeah, scratch scratch the service. I mean, I could. it's, it's almost a 50-50 perfect split between, uh, if I look at asking prices by suburb over the last 12 months mm. for houses, it's almost a p- perfect 50-50 split. 50% have fallen in price over the last 12 months and 50% have 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 increased in in median of the asking price suburb by suburb. Now I've I've sampled that by effectively taking properties that have had on average more than ten sales per month in that suburb through the period mm-hmm. and a few other things. So, but as, as a general guide, half the suburbs have fallen, half the suburbs have not fallen across in the Australia. last uh, across Australia right. in the last twelve months based on that filter that I just mentioned. Right. You know, mm. minimum ten average okay. listings. Interesting. So that's that's the housing space. The unit space, it's about 65% of them have fallen, mm-hmm. have come and come, uh, fallen uh, or fallen in, in asking price median. So that's quite, that, that's quite telltale because I could go and cherry pick any suburbs I want from the 50% and paint one particular picture. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. But equally I could pick from the other side and say, oh, no, no, mm. everything's great. Everything's fine. Mm. And really what you've got to do is look holistically at the suburb and say, okay, uh, has the asking price or the, the the sale median price shifted? Okay, what about the other measures? You know, days on market. That's a that's a easy one. Everyone yep. understands what it is. It's how long it takes to sell. Mm. So you'd look at that. That's one thing I, I'd look at. But the other one I really love, and the Americans are big on this, but we're not. And I don't understand why they focus on inventory levels. So typically, what they do is they they say how many properties are listed for sale, mm. how many are selling per month. Yeah. And they work that out and express that as a ratio. So, you know, the one I say is, okay, there's a hundred properties for sale, um, you know, 10 selling per month, 100 divided by 10, 10 months of stock. Yeah. Mm. And you look at that measure and if that aligns with the days on market and aligns with your median price, mm. then you can start to you know, make the assumption that the market's moving up or down. But you, you look at a little bit more, I think looking at more than one metric, look at two or three measures um, gives you a much broader, wider picture of that that marketplace. Is anyone reporting on that now, though, that... Inventory? Yeah. Um, Besides, you see the big figures. There's uh, 30,000 properties for sale right now across Sydney or something like that, but we don't actually see it too much on the suburb level. You need to effectively look at it in relation to what what's selling, the sale volume. So the total listing's totally irrelevant. Mm. If it's expressed in isolation, it needs to be expressed at the same time as well. They're all selling, mm. or they're not all selling. So I think I think um, at the moment it's not being published. I'm certainly planning on publishing it um, on my suburb trends website mm. because I think it's interesting. There's a very strong correlation to days on market. So if people are using days on market, that's pretty good. But sometimes it's good to get that extra metric yep. just to, to verify what you're looking at. We do calculate. I'm trying to remember exactly how we calculate it. Um, so, cause you can go into, I think, uh, and, and domain, one of them actually has a days on market yeah. average. Yep. And you can also go in, I think it's SQM. You can actually work out total volume total listings sold, or... total volume sold, or maybe we use price finder. I'm trying to remember what we do, but you can go and look in what's on the last year divided by 12, basically, and look how many properties are currently on the market in that suburb. And that's sort of a bit of a crude way. Mm. There's DSM, um, 
Or DSR. DSR. Uh, DSR. Yeah. So the what's that? That's DSR.com, I think yeah, it is. Yeah, it, it does kind of factor in, you know, demand uh, and yeah, supply. Yeah, demand supply, mm. demand supply ratio. So that's that is actually does have that built into it. I think that's I think that's a free sort of um, yep. sub everything you can plug into. So you know, this data is there if you can dig in and find it. it yeah. It's not too difficult to get, but yeah, it'd be great to have it in one spot. Yeah. Kent. And I guess <laughs> it's digging. That's the key though. You could, the data you is there, dig. but you've got to dig. And the, I guess, um, you know, in, in, I guess even then looking at that, is that digging far enough? So you say like, you know, maybe 8% of the stocks selling every month, you know, and so that's, that's a probably a pretty low figure, but is 20% of three bedroom houses selling and 2% of apartments selling? Because that would, you know, and if you want to buy a three-bedroom house, well, you go, well, maybe it's quite competitive. Yeah, I, I, I really like, if you're looking at an individual property, um, look at the, the suburb-level macro data at yeah. a, a you know, property level, so houses versus units. So if you're mm. investing in a house, okay, how's that entire housing market go? But you look at that individual property and you say, okay, well, if I look back through time, it's pretty easy to find comparable sales for that exact property. It might be a rundown fibro property in Moree, for example. Um, yeah, at the moment, inventory levels are really, really high. Well, well, yeah, well, actually, that's an interesting one. And it's a different story we, we, we'll, we'll kind of gravitate to yep. is, is if you look at data in isolation, say, Maury would give me terrific yield right mm-hmm. now, okay? But then you look at it and say, but hang on a minute, um, how many properties are listed for sale? And how many are selling? So inventory levels there are building and building quite right. high. Yeah. So we know that the capital growth is going to be a bit subdued mm. whilst this situation exists. Yep. Um, so if you're looking at it in isolation saying, great cash flow opportunity, I'm going to jump in, yep. um, you might be disappointed on the other front where you won't get the capital gain. So I think you've got to look at you know, you know, if it's owner-occupied or if it's an investment property, different data sets apply. But yep. you, know, you look at that individual property and you say, how many like it are for sale and what are they listed for? Yeah, so that tells you a lot. And then go back in time. Mm-hmm. Go back a year ago and say how many, you know, how many properties like this were selling at the same time a year ago. Yeah. You know, be objective. You know, don't cherry pick. Say, okay, mm. same bed counts, similar bed counts, similar condition. And what were they selling for a year ago? That's probably the best metric to know what how prices have shifted in a suburb. Yeah. And the problem is right now, while there's potentially a lot of stock across the whole board, you don't buy across the whole board. Generally you Buying a certain yeah, suburb, one suburb. And good suburbs, you know, haven't really got a, a lot of stock. You know, would you agree though? In a lot of the premium suburbs that you would look at, yeah, the stock stock shortage. I mean, most suburbs that I buy in now, you know, we're talking a third down. And and to be quite frank, we went back to two thousand sixteen. They were they were down a third then on previous years, and mm. they never really recovered. So now that sort of pretty much puts us at around about fifty percent of what we were looking at um, at the absolute peak of the market in terms of stock. So. That is underpinning price, you know, ho- prices holding, if you like, is basically because there's there's very little stock coming on the market. Those who and and also the fact is it's really hard to buy good quality property in a flat market, in a buyer's market, because those owners know they've got a really good asset and they will wait. Mm. Um, and so it tends to be the proportion of crap on the market goes up. 
when yeah. it's easier to buy stuff, right? So then, you know, so there's all this sort of sub stuff that goes on underneath the surface that you sort of need to understand. And of course, that means that you will get really competitive auctions and competitive um, negotiations on certain properties that are really good. Mm. And people will be going, and some buyers will be going, oh, I'm not competing for that's ridiculous. This is a buyer's market. And it's like yep. other buyers will be going, well, it doesn't matter because I've been looking for a year now and I have not found anything as good as this and I'm going to go for it. Yeah. I, I think uh, the, the total. The percentage at a suburb level of properties that are totally owned is a great indicator, you know, owned outright, as they call oh, it, yeah. in the census data. Mm. It's table G33. How nerdy is that? that I, I love know. that you know so, that. Yeah. So, <laughs> so it's a percentage of properties owned outright, and they divide this up. They can do it at a suburb level, but they can go right down to a, a what they call a statistical area, level one. It's around 200 homes. So yep. you know for that little pocket in, in the suburb – um, what the percentage of properties that are owned outright. And that's yep. a great lead indicator for so what you've good. just covered is that, mm. you know, these are people who own the damn thing. They're probably living in it or they could be, you know, blue blood, old school money, you know, yeah. owned mm. the property for a long time. They're not going to sell. They don't need to. Mm. It's a really good point. I really love that as well because, you know, when you think about things like negative gearing changing, the first thing you would go to, where would that affect? Well, you would look at that statistic and mm. say, well, the suburbs that are 90% owned by people mean that only one in 10 properties are owned by an investor. And the chances are, have those investors bought in the last 12 months? Well, only a portion of those have. A lot of them are bought maybe 5, 10, 15 years ago, and they're sitting on big gains. Yeah. And so those investors aren't going to sell anyway. Yeah, so- well, the, the, the rental tenure is, a, is, a, is another really interesting ah. uh, field. And mm. and I think which, which what is happening with the election at the moment, and, you know, investment property uh, is going to be obviously it's a hot topic in mm. terms of both the capital gains and, you know, um, existing property versus new um, the, if you look at the census data there, they do tell you, um, what the percentage of properties at a suburb and right down to a, a, an SA one, mm. what the percentage of rental properties are. Yep. And they split it up. This is a great measure because they say how many are managed by a real estate agent, how many are managed by somebody outside of the household, mm. you know, not a real estate agent and how many are public housing or community housing. Mm. Um, so you can look at some of these suburbs that are Typically, you know, 50, I like to look at 50% and above, mm. and, you know, these suburbs that are predominantly rental suburbs. And I'm watching them with great interest because what might happen in the coming months is going to be fascinating. So when you say you like to look at them, it's because you're curious? I'm curious. <laughs> I'm monitoring them. It's not because, because you're like, necessarily saying, look, these are great opportunities. <laughs> well, it's just, it's the dynamics of these locations. Because mm. I look at it and I say, okay, that percentage is a, I look at it quite differently. If it's a, for example, if it's a 60% rental tenure in a mm. suburb, I say, well, if a property sells there today, there's a 60% chance that it's going to be purchased by an investor. investor. Mm. So I look at it as a propensity score. Mm. And and those suburbs, uh, suburbs I would look at at the moment to say, well, you know, their capital growth potential for the next however long is really going to be hamstrung. It's already hamstrung because of the pressure on investors borrowing Exactly. Um, yeah. And and if it's a secondhand home, mm. depending on who wins on Saturday, yeah, yeah. you know, suddenly um, if, if, if six hand, out right? of 10, if six out of 10 potential buyers were coming through that were investors, suddenly that could be zero out yes. of 10. Yeah. Well, it's pretty much <laughs> zero out of 10 now. Right. Yeah. You know, in a lot of these suburbs, which is precisely why they've, they've you know, got in dire straits in terms of prices. Um, but yeah, I mean, for them, for how long into the future, is that going to be the case? Until it balances mm. out. And I wrote about this about three years ago saying, hey, if this negative gearing 
policy change shifts, here are some interesting suburbs to Correct. watch that had 50% higher mm. rental tenure for this reason. And this is the thing too, is, and what gets me, it's like this is not going to have a uniform impact across the country. And like anything with regard to property, there are not uniform, you know, reactions in different markets. But, but you know, they're talking about affordability and supposedly, you know, mm. supposedly the LP brought this out to say it's going to solve affordability for first well, home buyers. Well, it will buyers. by lowering prices. If it lowers prices. That's, know, if that's, that's got to be the objective, but then right? They go, but then they've come <laughs> out with data going, oh, no, Treasury's model is to say, no, it's not going to affect prices. Well, how is that then going to help first home buyers that they've got themselves tied in knots? But the the reality is... Sydney and Melbourne is the biggest issue for first home buyers getting into the market. Yep. They're the two markets that are going to be least impacted by this, whereas what you're talking about is those other areas are going to be severely, uh, many other areas, I won't yeah. say those, we haven't named them. But and individual investors. Yes. I mean, I think an investor wants to offload a house. Mm. Um, suddenly now if they're in one of these locations that's, you know, 50% plus rental tenure, yeah. they're going to struggle. With a very low yield. So yeah. that's where it kind of kicks. So it's like, A, it's bought by a lot by investors. Yes. And then secondly, when you look at the yield of what they're renting out for right now and yeah. how many other are on the market for rent, they're only getting a 3 4% yield, but then they've got a minus off massive strata fees. So their yield drops even lower. And then that's the, they're the suburbs. And it's very easy to kind of do those numbers on suburbs and go, no investor would buy this yeah. post-negative gearing. So, and, and most of the investors are ma and pa that you know, own that have got one property. Hundred percent. Yeah. So, so if their property is in one of those suburbs, they will hurt. Yeah. Now we'll just point out, listeners, that as you know, we record these interviews at all times. We are recording this. Two days before the yep. federal election, but we won't be releasing it till after. So all the stuff we're talking about now in conjecture, we'll, we'll know. We'll know by the time you yeah. get to listen Two to Two days' this. time. But yeah. even regardless, though, and this is why I think this conversation is interesting, is because these are still good fundamentals when you're investing. So we, you know, I've never had clients in buying these suburbs. They've Clients have got properties in these suburbs because they've come to me when they've already owned them. Um and, you know, high-rise apartments and, you know, we're figuring out what to do with a lot of, lot of the time. I mean, it was only this week we've got a problem where a client's got an apartment in Waterloo, you know, they bought it for 500 pre-boom, it went to 750. Now they'd be lucky to get low sixes for it, you know, and it's a one better. And, you know, the question is now, do you sell now? Do you hold on, hope for the best? Mm. You know, they want to upgrade. They've got a family on the way. Like it's a, they need the cash. So, you know, and there's, they will be dramatically affected as a couple because, you know, they have to sell because they have to upgrade. And so they, they'll go the whole process and go, well, that was a whole waste of time. And I'm years. guessing the rental tenure in Waterloo is pretty high. Yeah, I mean, type it in. I mean, Waterloo, <laughs> Rosebury, yeah. I think 800 units or something stupid will, will scare you. Well, actually, on that, I mean, because I was talking to a property manager in Bondi Junction recently, and because, of course, you've got all that new stuff out at um, Green Square and Mascot and... And they were saying that basically that glut of rental accommodation is infecting, infecting, I use the word infecting, mm. affecting um, all the eastern suburbs yeah. and, and, and probably into the inner west as well. And because previously people wouldn't have gone from Bondi Beach for arguments that they wouldn't have said, oh, yes, I'll go and rent in Mascot. Um, and maybe, maybe it's still on mass not. But, but the thing is when you've got a brand new apartment being offered um, for lease very cheaply, <laughs> You know, and it's like all of a sudden it's like, well, God, it's brand new. Like I'll just go and live there for a while. I'll get yep. there's incentives to sign one year lease, and maybe I'll move out again after that. But whatever, you know, you, you tell yeah, I've got clients who've done that for sure. Yeah, like they were living in Edgecliff, and they were like, well, 
You know, I've, my mate is, is said I can rent this thing for 600 bucks a week. It's a brand new big two bed, two bath with parking, with views, high rise for 600 bucks a week. Yeah. And they're like renting a, an old Art Deco yeah. sort of thing in Edgecliff for 700 that's a bit run down. Well, actually, no, let's just go live there for a year. But I, I, that's what I love about the rental market because it's fluid. Yeah. You know, when, when things shift, people yeah. can move around. You know, mm. So you, know, you might only be six months in, you've only got to wait another six months and you can move. But that's when you've got a special apartment, you know. There's something unique about it. There's some, the, the, the suburb, the community, the street. So even though they build this stuff, your tenants go, well, you know what, I don't really want to live there. I don't like those parties and the noise. I do like the community and the quieter streets. And so, you know, you're much more protected because your, your tenants will go, look, I really, that, I just don't, not, I'm not at that stage of life where I want to be around that. So, I mean, and I guess that's the thing, that they lure them there when they're brand new and then when they're not brand new, there's nothing to mm. lure them there. And mm. then they'll go back to where they wanted to be in the first place. Yeah. So there's this sort of, like you say, it's the fluidity. So so this, this tenancy, um, the tenant, the rental tenure is an interesting one. I find that... Uh, that I haven't got into that depth of it, if, to splitting, but do they also, is there data around how long tenants tend to stay? That's not public domain data as far as uh, I'm aware, um, but you can typically sample a lot of the, uh, the the lease terms are advertised in the in the listings. Mm. So you don't need to go too far into it to find a, you know, a sample of, of listings, look at the, the text, um, and you'll, you'll glean from it. Um, you know, what the, the, the lease term is. Mm. Um, there are companies uh, like ALO uh, that I um, have done some consulting with and they have this particular data set mm. as well. So they've, you know, they collected it and, and work with agents and do some really interesting analysis at that level. And so, yeah, I mean, do you think that, that at some point though, you're getting the data just gets better and better, right? Because there's more information sources, there's more machines to analyse that data yeah, that we will be able to just keep going deeper every year in this. I think the key is a, a lot of data already exists; it's untapped. Mm. And I think you once you start to aggregate it, collect it, and then hand it back to the original uh, owners of that as a a packaged, meaningful insight, mm. uh, you know, tell a good data story with it. Suddenly, people realise the value. Mm. And I think at the moment, you know, there's these massive amounts of data sets in all in all facets. I was at a Mumbrella conference not long ago and it was a retailer conference and pretty much everyone got up there from the retail sector and said the same story. We've got all this data, but we don't know what to do mm-hmm. with it. And I'd almost kind of say that that applies to every business everywhere, that they're still discovering the value of their data sets. Mm. Moving data in terms of, you know, because I know you've got a company that does, you know, help people, you know, target people who home are movers. moving yeah. homes. And, yeah. you know, it's, it's a pretty smart business, to be honest, because if you're moving home, you need to spend a lot of money on removalists and energy and <laughs> furniture and blah, blah, blah. So it's, but just if we put that to one side, in suburbs, you know, can you tell us about the differences between some suburbs where people are moving around a lot and yes. changing properties a lot and then some that are not? And what's kind of the, what, what's your what's, experience yeah. with that? So um, this is in the census data. Mm. Uh, so typically says, have you lived somewhere else you know, within the last five years? Yep. Uh, I think there's a shorter term. It might be, have you moved somewhere in the last two years as well? So I often and mainly use the five-year one. Yep. And that gives you a you know, great idea. There's a strong, strong correlation uh, to rental tenure because obviously, mm. you know, 
people are moving on average about three years. Yep. So my statistics are telling me that, you know, rental, rent, rental tenure, people are staying in their same rental property on average around three years. And mm. what about owner-occupiers? Owner-occupiers different between uh, geographies and property types. So, mm. for example, um, a houses would be, um, again, this does vary, but, you know, yep. I'll pick a, a high-level figure. It's 10-year plus. Right, yeah. Whereas units are significantly lower. Mm. And for obvious reasons, yep. you know, that's where you start out. You have a family, you You're meet somebody, stone. you get sick of the noisy neighbours, and then you move up, you know, you move from your Coogee unit to your Balmain house. <laughs> what, what about the, pre, like the inner ring suburbs, you know, because that's where kind of people want to end up. You know, but comparing that to, say, houses in the outer suburbs, are they moving around a lot more and well, changing properties a lot more? The driver for me is rental tenure. So a lot of the inner ring, inner city suburbs have that significantly higher rental tenure. Mm. So that's what's driving that variable. Mm. So but people are when you say higher rental tenure, mean so they stay longer? The, no, no, no. The percentage of people, the percentage of properties that are rental properties is the driver yep. for, for a lot of movers. Yes. Mm. That's that's pretty logical. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, and you can just, you can look at it all day long, mm. you know, how mm. many properties are listed for rent and how many properties are listed mm. for sale. And you you can just isolate it and say, well, the suburbs with all the movers, they're all the uh, the higher, the ones with the higher rental tenure. Mm. Yep. So that's from an, any, so yes, I mean, from an investor's point of view, if you do invest in an area where a high number of the properties are renters, Mm-hmm. you're going to have to know that there's also a cost to that because they're moving around a lot. And so you're going to have tenants that are going to move around a lot. So you're going to stay there for a year and then they're going to move somewhere else. But the, you're saying the areas where there's very low rental tenure, they're not moving around as much. No, they're not. Mm. Um, so I, I classify for my, I just did finished a project last week where I split it by um, above 50% rental tenure and below 50%. Um, and it was designed for a marketing agency that wanted to target and profile suburbs. Mm. Um, so yeah, I, I look at, you know, high rental tenure, low rental tenure, and you know, the majority of the, uh, the inner ring high density type suburbs, they're all, they're all, you know, lots and lots of rental properties. Mm. It's sort of interesting though, because once again, this, this whole digging beneath the data, when you look say Potts Point, for instance, and that, that, uh, that peninsula there, mm. right? Yeah. If you go back to the 1990s, I think it's actually had the highest capital growth. Yeah. Um, but it's a place you want to live now. It is a place you want to live. But, but it's actually also got something like 68% uh, investor owned. Yeah. It, it, so it bucks the, bucks the trend. Mm. You know what I mean? But it's so well located. It's fantastically located. Most of the time I would look at that at that numbering as 68% investor owned to go, right, you don't mm. touch it with a, with a barge pole. However, I recommend a lot of investors, we've, we've bought quite a lot of property there for, for clients over the years and I'd happily buy there myself. Mm. Um, so it is interesting so that you've got to sort of understand so much more than just purely the data. You Then you've got to go to overlay it with local knowledge and all that sort of stuff, don't you? Well, is it going to be vacant for a long period mm. of time or is, you know, is it going to be vacant for a few days or uh, are the rents volatile? Mm. You know, are the yeah. rents up and down? Yeah. And that's, you know, that's a great lead indicator mm. to say if they're fairly stable or they're growing steadily, then, you know, the demand's pretty pretty solid, matched up yep. and married to supply. Yeah. And I think, I mean, Potts Point's an interesting one as a t- t- case study, I guess, because, I mean, probably 20 years ago it was highly undesirable to live there and, <laughs> yes. you know, the, cro- the cross was, you know, in full flight. Yeah. Um, and we're looking at where it is now. Um, you know, it's probably the, one of the most premium apartment places where a lot of downsizers would love to live. 
because of the accessibility to the harbour and the city and, you know, and so the owner-occupiers are pushing that market up. Absolutely. And then the renters, um, yeah, I mean, they're not building any more really. And if they are building them, they're building like, you know, the Omnia building, what that's got a two in front of it for, you know, a one better almost. Yeah. So, you know, they're expensive, you know, and and if so, like, you know, those those little high supply markets, um, over time, they're probably getting more and more owner occupiers in those markets. And so that's. I think it's true. Did you see the meme that came out on social media that did the picture of King's Cross uh, at nighttime 10 years ago and then what it is today saying, hey, look, you know, it's lost its life. Mm. But then what they should have done is done that same photo at lunchtime. Because, yeah. you know, it was it was empty at lunchtime mm. 15, 20 years ago. How now it's thriving. Yeah. Oh, my dad managed a hotel in King's Cross all, all his life. So I've been up there. I've seen oh, it wow. transition. Right? Yeah. I've seen everything happen up there. And, and yeah, now we call it Potts Point. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no, it's hilarious, I, I call it? it King's Cross. Potts Point or Posh Point has sort of expanded its boundaries, hasn't it? Yeah. King's yeah. Cross has shrunk. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, there's this gorgeous little... <laughs> cul-de-sac with loads of beautiful Art Deco apartments mm. and all the rest of it, and it was always seen as being too seedy. Mm. And then you can you can see that how Potts Point has encroached into King's Cross, how that's become almost forgotten that it was too seedy before. Mm. It was yeah. only 10 years ago it was too seedy. It was pretty rotten. I find it's, just, it's hilarious when you do ask someone where they live, and if they are living in them, you know, they'll change. They'll go, oh, it's not Potts Point, it's Elizabeth Bay, or it's, <laughs> you know, it's not... Ledge Cliff, it's, it's Rose Bay, fluid. it's Double Blay, you know. Yeah. It's like, you know, we all like to, and I know you're from Newcastle. Newcastle's got a bit of a problem with that, you know. People live in Adamstown and then they'll say, no, I live in Merriweather, you know. Because <laughs> it's, uh, but, but as a, that's well, a. We used to do it in Balmain when I first started selling real estate there and there's, there's the Balmain Peninsula, right? You've got oh, Balmain, oh, Birch on the Grove, and you've got Balmain East, and then you've got a bit of Roselle yeah. that's on the peninsula. Mm-hmm. And we used to advertise these houses as Balmain Peninsula. Now, real estate agents used to know that that meant Roselle, really. <laughs> but, Code. you know, because it's like the Balmain Peninsula, and it, it's not, it doesn't even exist as a suburb, mm. Balmain Peninsula. But it, it made me laugh because then people started getting GPS and of course, they go to plug in Balmain Peninsula and our address it. couldn't find it. We had to stop and start advertising everything as Roselle so people could find it. <laughs> Roselle's actually a really good one as well. You know, for any of our Sydney listeners, they'll probably know where that is, you know, Melbourne or other places, you know, it's close to the city, but it's got a massive road that's extremely busy through the middle of it. And when you're looking at Roselle as a suburb, you've got to be really careful whereabouts in Roselle is that property because on the left side, you've got West Connects coming, smokestacks you know, freeway changes. On the right side, you've got, you know, potentially high-end buildings, you know, lots of commercial changing. And so it's one of those suburbs where, you know, you look at data and you, you can very quickly make the wrong call on Roselle because you might be picking the wrong comparables. Well, if you're not aware of what's going on underneath exactly. or what's causing the changes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Mm. And, the, you know, the, the automated models, it's a good segue, you know, the ah. automated models... Um, have got to obviously you w- want to pick your comparables from the street and the mm. locality. Yes, um, and and you know picking uh, the comps as a as a broad radius that would cross over Victoria Road and grab you know. Yeah, so let's talk about AVMs or automated valuation models because of course uh, the banks love um, advertising these. You know they'll give you a free report and, and a lot of mortgage brokers will give you a free report and they are all that uh, they vary in terms of the output. Yeah. So talk to us a bit about AVMs. Well, I've been playing around with them, so I'm guilty as charged. I've been building them for a long time, but the advantage of that <laughs> is you know where they go wrong. You know what the risks are. And, you know, I like to devote myself into into that risk of uh, calling out the data for what it is, mm. calling out the models for what they are and talking to the errors. 
So uh, with AVMs, one of the biggest risks at the moment, uh, machine learning offers some fantastic opportunities, but the downside is we've got a, a flurry of people who um, might be experts in machine learning without any domain knowledge in mm. property, and they're throwing in the whole nation into one big bucket, one big database, and letting the model train itself for a couple of days and spitting out what look like pretty good results. But the problem is it fits some models and some results that are rather opaque at best, you know, black box, I call it. And there's some crazy results that come mm. out. So you've got to be really careful what you feed these mm. big, big black machine learning boxes. Um, and you've got to almost kind of refine it and say, well, you can only do these suburbs and you can only do maximum five bedroom and you mm. can't do above 2,000 square metre lot sizes. Otherwise, you get some really crazy stuff. And my biggest concern is that you're going to have a flurry of people producing these models now without mm. any domain expertise, not putting in the appropriate filters, and we may see some crazy results filter through to the consumer. Well, you already mm. do have that, and I did a little study on this. Um, so I've got uh, – I'm developing – I've actually got a business uh, partner, Megan Hetherington, and we've, we're developing Home Buyer Academy, which is uh, going to be an online resource. We're starting with first home buyers, right, and we've mm. created a little course. So if anyone wants to download it, by the way, it's Home Buyer Academy – forward slash free course. Part of that is the, the, the little course is teaching people how to work out what price to pay mm. because it's really, really important, really mm. super important. And it's there's some principles that we take you through and there's a spreadsheet involved and all mm. rest of it, but there's three short videos. The middle video is all about AVMs and the research I did and one case study, Megan did a case study in Brizzy, I did a case study in uh, Sydney and the one that I did, I looked at a property in Tempe that sold in December last year, a little house in Tempe. And before it sold, I got 10 AVMs. Actually, yes, 10 AVMs. Most of them hark from CoreLogic. So mm. it, basically the data source is, is from one of two. It's going to be APM or CoreLogic, right? So, but how that turns into a recommended price is obviously mm. dependent on what, what variables are punched into the thing. So a bunch, these all came from different banks, from mortgage brokers, there's a bunch of mm. different sort of sources of these AVMs and not one of them, actually all 10 of them were above the ultimate sale price, every single one. And part of that is because it's a falling market. Yep. And of course mm. they're all looking in the revision mirror. So that's the starters. So if anybody had looked at one of those AVMs and relied on it, they would have been overpaid. Paid over the odds. Yeah. So that's the first thing. The second thing, the only one that was really close to the ultimate sale price was actually the one I plugged in. I did the agent RP data report. So mm -hmm. that's when I plugged in variables myself based on my knowledge. Mm. So I'm proud to say uh, right. that my personal input got the, got the closest one but the rest were way out. There was a spread of $430,000 from the top to the bottom, mm. right? And this is the ultimate sale price was a sliver over a million. Yes. So that's a 40%. No, that's ridiculous. Yes. Mm. And the actual, on the on the actual estimated, so they, they got these spreads, right? And then you got the estimated sale price. There was $115,000 spread on that. And taking into point that not one of them was less than or equal to the actual sale price. Yeah. So that's $115,000 spread in a, in a excess Addition, yeah. of the actual yeah. sale price. Um, and I was just gobsmacked. And look, some of them, and with high confidence, they actually have on their high confidence. Once was, yeah. One was a million and 74 high confidence and it sold for a million and two and a half. Mm. 
you know, so so I was gobsmacked. So once again, if you want, want ah. to get access to that, I oh, will put the link, the, sh- the link in the show notes. So yeah. That's really important that people are looking to buy a property actually learn how to do their research properly. Well, I think I've always been a, f- a fan of actually selecting the best comparables yourself. Yes. Mm. So that's that's and that's easier to do today than it's ever been. So just yep. go and find properties that have sold that are, are, are similar. Um, the, what you can do is if they, they might be a little bit older. So for example, you, you find a property that sold six months ago, even 12 months ago. Mm. Typically what will happen is these uh, automated valuation models that are, are on the portals, et cetera, they'll take that sale price that happened a year ago for that well-matched comparable yep. and they'll index it forward. So it mm. won't be crazy. It'll still be close mm. to what the sale price, but if there's been some market movement up or down, it'll index it for a, mm. for a set period of time. It won't. Yeah, but then that's reliant on median growth data? It depends on who's doing it. So, right. you know, some do hedonic indices, et cetera. Yep. But let's just, let's just hold the assumption that that mm. index isn't crazy. Yeah. All right. If we hold that, what, if you go and find those comps yourself, yeah, cherry pick the best match yep. comparables, even though they might be 12 months old, mm. maybe even a little bit older. Usually, most of these companies will index those properties forward. So then what happens is you've got an adjusted price given to you for the comparable. So it might mm. be up or down a little bit. And then just look at those. Mm. Mm. Oh, you've got to go so close to the actual property that you're actually you have buying. to because the models can't yeah. – the models aren't good at quality at this stage. Yeah. You know, they mm. will. They will. You know, the AI stuff scanning photos and saying, is the bathroom new – um, mm. yeah, that will happen. We know that will happen. Um, yeah, but some models are a little bit more sophisticated than others and they, you know, they look for, uh, matched streets and they profile the streets and pull properties from, from that. Um, so, you know, there, there are, but the biggest thing that I'm finding is a bit of a problem and I've been part of this is you get in there and you build a model to what you call a, a minimum viable product, something you can get added to your website yep. and get some traction and get some eyeballs and everyone's happy and everyone's committed to, oh, yeah, look, let's just get it out there. Let's release it and then we'll come back and we'll, we'll fix it up later. Yep. And then you're not there. Your contract winds up or you move on to another job or you start s- selling, moving away from the engineering team into the sales team. And suddenly the products are out there and years later, they're still the first version you ever built. Oh, right. With no one maintaining it. Oh. Yeah. Okay. And that's the biggest problem. So lenders, mortgage insurance, yes. um, you've done a bit of work in a QBE. I... Uh, no, I, um, Housing Loans Insurance Corporation was, uh, you're talking about the ScoMo thing and the 5% deposit. And it, Not you, yet, but yeah. You will. <laughs> I know you will. You probably know where I'm going. Yeah, but, but the... it just reminded me, Housing Loans Insurance Corporation, sold, it effectively it was a government owned mm. and it sold and a GE bought it, GE Capital bought it. Oh, okay. And I was brought on board by GE. Um, GE Mortgage Insurance to yep. come on and run their operations and effectively take it from being a, a government structure into a GE structure. Mm. So that was my, that was the reason why I got into this nerdy stuff. Wow. And what was that job actually doing? Um, mortgage insurance. It was yep. it's, uh, typically anyone. Like lenders mortgage insurance. Lenders mortgage insurance. And, yep. and you know, we're effectively in the earlier days, we we're probably processing seven or 800 uh, mortgage applications and valuations a day with our, our teams. Yep. Um, and really deep diving into the property security risk and, you know, mm. effectively the, the personal profile of the borrowers and their borrowing capacity and all those things. And what do you think about lenders mortgage insurance? The current structure of it, its viability and whether it's a good thing and if it helps people, 
What do you think of lenders' mortgage insurance? Oh, well, I, I look back to the original design of HLIC, which seems very similar to what this, this, the SCOMO strategy is. It's how do we help people who, don't, who can't get 20% down payment? Yeah. Because it was a, a, a marketplace where before it, you could only buy a house or get a mortgage with a 20% yeah. deposit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and so LMI came in, Lenders Mortgage Insurance came in, buy Housing Loans Insurance Corporation to help people who didn't have 20%. Yeah. Um, so there was a, a, a social yep. component to it, mm. a social equality. And the current structure now, do you think that it, you know, from your view, do you think it works quite well? Do you think it's fair? Do you think that it needs to be changed? I, I always look at it and I say for the money – the money that the LMI premium is versus the money that I'm paying for the loan itself. And, you know, am I paying too much for property? If the underlying, if we, if we scratch the surface and say, what are we trying to do here? We're trying to put people into homes and do it cost effectively. I think everything's fluff that's not related directly to demand and supply. I get right back to supply every time. Yeah. You know, you want to put people in, you want to house people cheaply, build more stuff. Mm. That's my view. LMI and all these other peripheral paper-based strategies and policies and politics, I don't think ultimately they matter. And sometimes politicians, you know, they get involved and try and achieve one outcome with a particular policy. Yep. And, in, and when it applies to the market in reality, it often comes out the opposite. Yeah. Well, that's right. You know, we give first home buyers a grant and it just pushes and up it the pushes market. And it pushes up the price. Okay. Yeah. This is a great yeah. story. When that came in, that first homeowner's grant, the first one, FOG as we called it, right? You know, everything had an acronym in mortgage insurance. Yeah. In Australia. <laughs> when that came in, we saw prices step change on the day. Oh, we saw On it. the day. Yeah. And, and the step change was significantly more than their first home buyers, uh, first homeowner's grant. So, yeah. what, so what, like, you know, great. Because it was a $7,000 grant, And 14K it? or something. Yeah, yeah. I'm like, it's going yeah. back a while now, mm, right? So yeah. my memory's fading because I'm old. But, you know, wow, great. You've given me 14K and I've just spent 50K extra on the property. Yeah. That's mm. nuts. But but it's that short-term thinking that, that seems to take over. So I'm going to wait. I'm going to get my seven grand, my 14 grand. And, and we saw it exactly the same thing. We could see quite clearly in that type of property back then that it was like you could easily see thirty to fifty thousand dollars extra. Mm. And we overnight. we saw it on so the, saw it day. the day. Yeah, mm. we just were mm. watching. We were processing seven or eight hundred, like, and we yeah. could just see it instantly. It's like, wow, this yeah. is nuts. I mean, yeah. I I've been thinking about it a lot, and I just think you know what it's really doing. It's like a credit card. You know, you're kind of bringing forward future demand, mm. and you're saying we need that demand today. We need to get buyers today, and we need to get every buyer that is a first home buyer who could buy. We need them to buy today to prop up the market. Now, reality is if it was they could enter the market in a year or two time because they save from their 5% deposit, they might only need at the moment, with lenders' mortgage insurance, it's not that expensive if you can get yourself to a 10% deposit, right? Mm. It, if you're buying at 7 or 8%, it's, it's a, a lot. It's a different risk profile. Yeah. There yeah. were two, two spikes for risk with, with LMI. There was the 79% loan-to-value ratio or LVR, yeah. and that was, that, that was effectively the massaged um, purchase price, you know, going out and milking valuations and trying to get it, you know, yeah, get it yeah. just trying to do everything you can to get get it to that below 80% LVR, right? Which yeah. is defeats right? the bloody right? purpose. So th- but it were two distinct <laughs> spikes in the risk profile. Yeah. The other one was 5% yeah. deposit, right, wow. or 95. Yeah. So it was 
percent yep. risk. It was at one spike where you paid a lot of claims, mm. and the other one was ninety five percent. Wow, hundred percent. Interesting. And you can see this is exactly what's going to happen because what these, you know, if you can get yourself to a ten percent deposit, you know, and it might mean waiting six months. It might mean you know selling the car. It might the forty thousand dollar mm. car that you've got. It might be you know, potentially getting a bit of extra money from your parents, you know, five, 10,000. I have smashed back. avocado when I come into Sydney yeah. for breakfast. So it's, you know, I think. There you, are cut bucks they can do. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, you're old enough to be able to. Though. Yeah. And a bit of pain there <laughs> to get themselves yeah. into the market. It's not a bad thing. And, you know, I think what they're trying to do is, you know, prop up the housing market by basically saying, look, you know, those buyers that we're going to buy next year are going to buy this year. So you're going to create a future problem because next year that buyer is not going to be buying, right? So you can only use it once. And I guess, you know, the problem is if you've only got a 5% deposit in a falling market and you buy a poor asset and because of the limits on how much money, income you've got, it's going to push people to certain price points. And so, you know, you'll find that it's generally the lower price properties that can only be bought. Yep. And so you're going to push people in into lower price properties. You're, you're artificially playing with the market. Yeah. You know, we've we just forgotten that, you know. Yeah, and I guess it's just the people who have and they've got the lease, they get no free stamp duty, 5% deposit, go and buy this. It's risk-free. Market goes up. Just get on the ladder and they go and do it just to, you know, and I just find that it's a, it's a very, a lot of people say you're a mortgage broker. Shouldn't you love it? I say, well, you know, because it's more demand. But well, no, it's stitching people up. It's, you know, it's cra- playing with their, they don't know what they don't know. Well, that's exactly it. I mean, it's, it's hopefully then they can got a little bit of spare money to actually pay for some advice. Mm. Um, if they don't have to save up 20% deposit. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's interesting that's a good point because mm. will the policy say, even if you've got 20, 30, 20%, can you get the policy? Like, can you put the 150 grand that you've got, give that to the parents go in with the 5%, get the 95% from the government and then bring your cash back in. Well, you're not really getting the 95% from the government. The government is just basically paying your LMI, right? No. I mean, it's unsure how it's going to do, but they're going to guarantee the 15%, which is pretty crazy. So the are government's they really risking. guaranteeing that or are they basically just saying, no, you still got to go to the bank and get your 95% loan. It's just that we're going to pay the LMI. Isn't that what nah, they're saying? No, I don't think so. I think, well, that's how I've interpreted it, but yeah. I, think I, I think I've oversimplified it. Yeah, I don't know because I don't think any LMI provider, would, the amount of LMI would be ridiculous. And I don't think the government's going to want to be paying thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollars $50,000 per customer of the LMI. So what they've got to do, they've got it's to guarantee. that much, is it? It is, over 90%. So that's the problem with this. Really? Yeah. Well, a lot of the, the, the fees are published. Yeah, so it's about 3.5%. So let's say it's a, tw- but even still, if you're talking a property of, you know, $500,000, that's $20,000 the government would have to pay to pay this LMI. It's not going to just throw the money away and the bank's not going to take the risk on. So what yeah, but they might just underwrite it without actually paying it. Who will? The bank? The government. I so, mean, yeah, they're not actually paying LMI. Yeah. They're, they're providing a guarantee yeah. for the loan, which is a bit different. So if in this situation the property, they buy it for five hundred, the customer's got a 95% loan, 475 and then they, two years later, they get get a divorce, and they have to sell that property for four fifty, and they lose twenty five thousand dollars. The government would fit that bill. And so what the government was basically doing is the government's taking the risk of pushing people into negative equity. Well, they're, if, they're taking the risk that those people will have to sell. I think the biggest concern, though, is you 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 implement these policies and you create a surge in demand which inflates prices, which yeah. is the same as the fog. Yeah. 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 I mean, look, this is what 
bothers me about the, uh, you know, this election is is the policy, housing policy on the fly yep. mm. um, with, the, with the Libs and with the ALP, it's housing policy developed in a vacuum uh, a few years ago, back yeah. um, and also with a complete disregard for and in disinterest in dealing with or talking to the industry, mm. you know, and I get that they think we're all vested interests, but it's like, uh, yeah, but we might know something that maybe you could learn from and in which case you can develop a, a better policy rather than mm. this sledgehammer approach does my head in, but anyway, and it's also, so, uh, of course, it's not a $7 trillion market anymore, is it? Asset 6. class? 6.3 or something. It's gone down. But I just, I keep <laughs> on getting back to supply and demand and, and you know, so many people in the property sector say it's all about red tape. If you can remove some red tape, I'll build some more stuff. Mm. Well, the problem is with building more stuff is that what has been built in the past largely has been crap as yep. well. And so, you and know, it's we've a got, real problem now, and, especially and, with some of the high rise Yes, the quality of the high rise is uh, under question. Yeah, so I think you're right as well, though. Like the, it's the it comes down to the government makes too much money on the building oh, of the new stuff. Here we go, Chris. He's a bit stuff. of he's a bit of I mean, because, theorist here. <laughs> because the, you know you know I can't remember who it was, but I think forty percent of the forty yeah, percent of, ta- of the cost the value of the property is tax. Is tax. So if you buy something for five hundred thousand, the government's making two hundred grand in tax. Yeah. So if they really wanted to make housing more affordable, they would cut all the costs in actually releasing land. Yeah. It's in every layer of government. Yeah. And this is it's it's and then and then stamp duty charges you taxes on taxes. On taxes on taxes, yeah. And I think the the, the other thing that does upset me, you get a greenfield site and they zone it straight away low density. Mm. You know, and and you don't fit a lot of houses or a lot of families there. You should probably zone it medium density from get go or high density yeah. and build a good rail corridor. And that's, you know, the Chinese have done that and do that well. You know, mm. build a... Well, they've a ra- got no alternative. They've got yeah, loads it's more all, people. It's all high density. But, mm. yeah, if the end game is, you know, putting people in houses, then why wouldn't you f- pursue the strategy that does that most efficiently? Yeah. And why, why wouldn't you get involved with that a little bit more rather than saying to them, you can do whatever you want with it, you know? Well, and this, yes. So, I mean, look, that there's a whole other episode on that. But so your suburb trends, what, yes. are, you, what, what are you doing in that? Well, it's all about um, telling good stories around property. It's about data stories. And there's a, you know, there's always a good story to tell. And, and, and I think you've got to be truthful in talking to the limitations of data. So it's a very much um, a focus on a, the investor class, uh, as we've covered today, um, and taking as, or creating as many tools as possible to help the investor understand you know, what they've already got, but equally understanding, you know, places where they could go. Yeah. Mm. So there's a lot of content at the moment that's uh, on the site that's, uh, that's free that, you know, would otherwise be stuff that you would pay for, or would you have to go and buy a magazine mm. to get access to the data tables? I've made that free. So yeah. Um, it's, look, um, we'll include the link in the show notes thank as you very well much. so people can get in there and play around. Yeah. And so what can people discover in there? Well, it, you can compare all the suburb trends. So it's kept an obvious name. Um, so it's, you know, <laughs> So, and then at a property level. So what, what I've done is I've created it such you can enter an address and then find, uh, you can access the entire national suburb trends from your individual address. Yeah. But, you know, you can drill into the address and then we've done some things further down on the page like price segmentation. You know, in each price bracket, 
uh, how many Ooh. properties are sold in each one. Yep. And if that you know that I love that. Yeah. Um, you developed that in Price Finder, didn't we you? We did, and yeah. uh, the Price Finder one has rendered up beautifully. They've done a great job in the last few years presenting that. It's mm. quite nice. So uh, oh, my... I tell you, there's a failing with it. Oh, it doesn't move. The, the scale doesn't move in price yeah, brackets. Yes, it needs to be fixed with bucket. And the other thing that I believe needs to be created, and this is on my product roadmap, is to animate it year on year. Mm. So you can watch, like you're looking at an amplifier Ooh, with, you know, this. effectively, if you look at it, 200K brackets, yeah. fill the width of the page and start 10 years ago and say, you know, what, how is this thing shaped up and moving through time? Wow. And watch it as a wave. A gentrification, that would be really interesting when you see a, a suburb gentrify. As you move it. So you can hit play and see it animate. Wow. And, and, and look, just, just for the listeners, the price segmentation, for me, it's just an exciting discovery some years back. And what it is, is what you want is a bell curve, right? We yep. love bell curves, right? So a bell curve means, and, and a price segmentation graph that fills this beautiful, you know, forms this beautiful bell curve is at the lower end, it will show you how many properties sold in a suburb for in the lower price brackets. And then you would see that the, it's a bar graph. And for each price bracket, you'd see gradually more people until there's most popular price bracket. And then slowly it declines again up to you get to the most expensive price bracket. And that's sort of the normal form of most suburbs. Um, and so for me, when I'm looking to help investors in particular, you'd be looking into say, well, you want to buy a property that fits into the most popular segment of that market. So these people that say you've got to buy under median, I say that's bullshit. You've got to go for the most popular where you've got multifaceted buyer pool, blah, 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 blah. Or if you're looking to add value and you don't want to overcapitalize, you want to be careful that you're not buying. Don't get something. up in the tail. Yeah, exactly. So, so there's some really, really very simple ways to interpret this, this information. So I love the fact you're putting it there. So having it freely available, this is the first one that's been freely available for years since PriceFinder took that suburb flyover off freely available. I so, didn't know it's not longer. Oh, no it hasn't been there. for years. Oh, hasn't been available okay. freely. So this is, yeah, it's really good news. I, yeah. I didn't discover it in your, I've had a flick through You've got to go down the page for that. You need but, to go and scroll. So effectively we're adding lots of things um, at the moment, evaluating whether we put on the, you know, the best uh, agents who can obviously uh, rent your property. So that's the next thing we're evaluating at the moment. Um, for us though, for me, I'm looking at it saying, if you're a, a landlord or a property investor today, you pretty much know what your property's worth. You pretty much know what, what it's renting for, but you're in, always interested in trends. Mm. You know, that's the trends that are the most interesting. Are things going up or down or whatever? So it's all about the, the data storytelling around the trends in the suburb. Yeah. I mean, I was playing around with it this morning, uh, you know, types in a few different uh, properties that are kind of on the market and things like that. And it was actually comparing using that to, you know, a domain, et cetera, it's just so much fluff and so much, like so much, Ads. yeah, and it just <laughs> confuses you and it's words and stuff like that. So one of the best, best things about yours is actually extremely simple and you're only focusing on, you know, and what was really good is the recent sales. You know, I found that actually just getting the comparables of the, let's say, two-bedroom houses in X suburb was much easier because when you're on these big platforms, it's just so hard to actually get a, a long, you know, 20 or 30 sales, and I think yours how many are you showing on your? Well, it, it depends on the, the on the property if there's only a few, but effectively that will be um, that we're doing a lot of work there with a matching algorithm. So effectively, you come into a three bedroom, one bathroom property in Balmain, uh, we'll uh, create a comps list that's based on a matching algorithm. Mm. That's some of the you know some of the roadmap stuff that we. Creating. Oh, you've been playing with this for years. I know, yeah, yeah. You and I have so. had so many conversations over the years about sort of trying to get 
uh, agents to give you best comps and, and people to feed the data in and all that sort of stuff. And so this is, you're actually starting to use the algorithms yourself to well, yeah, it's that finally, out, yeah? yeah, it's finally my own stuff. Mm. Yeah, it's exciting. After all these years. So one final thing we might ask you about is um, chasing yield and finding, and what do you think some of the problems that could come in the next, say, 12 to 18 months? Yeah. If, if there is a turnaround and, you know, investors are always going to be there in the property market, you know, it's it's an important part of it all. But, you know, they may go, well, look, I'm not going to buy growth for some crazy reason. They might go, I might go chase it's yield. It's all about cash flow. So I've started to take the, the new listings we find each week and we we isolate the ones that we know the address and we know the asking price and we look at the lower end of the asking price and from that we compare it to what we can rent it for and we produce a what we call a cash flow report. And and I, did, I really stumbled upon this and the data speaks to you sometimes and what I found was that all the highest yielding properties were in these remote rural locations. Um, yeah, and the city ones were still there, but they were way down the, on in terms of yield. And then I thought to myself, wow, if I was spreading this information out, not filtering it and not digging deeper, you know, only looking at yield as the single metric, then I could almost be steering people to these locations where cash flows could be, you know, um, unreliable, you know, and equally capital values could decline. Um, because could you give an example of a suburb just as an, so well, our listeners can visualize? I, I picked it. on Moree. Yeah. All right, so Moree was coming to the top of on my cash flow yield calculation. And where's Moree? Moree's up northwest New South Wales. So there were a lot of locations, and effectively, the, when I scratched the surface and said, "Well, hang on a minute," um, if everybody follows a report like this, if it was unfiltered, and you just were presenting the best cash flow suburbs or the best cash flow properties. And there's plenty of these lists out right. there. Right. And you and and then I, I, I had to slap myself on the hand. So be careful here. Mm. You know, obviously you put the disclaimers out there, but you you want to do the best the best thing by people. And I, I realised that what could happen is in the pursuit of a a secondhand property before um, policy change. We could have a flurry of people into these regional locations chasing cash flow. Mm. And then what happens after, you know, and then you're going to see some significant shifts in markets. A lot of these are fairly small regional markets. You can find a flurry of investors come in, stoking up purchase prices. And so when you say they're small, you're talking, you know, maybe a hundred houses. Yeah. Well, that, but they might be an isolated community. So the suburb itself might have a few hundred properties in mm. it or yep. you know, even a few thousand, yep. but they you know, they might be 90, 90% across the agriculture sector or whatever isolated. So, you know, it's not like a sub in a suburb in Sydney. You know, these are, these are a lot of these localities are beholden upon one or two sectors yep. for employment. Yep. Um, they may have a high unemployment rate above the national average currently. Mm. So, you know, there, there's some some risk there. There's some beautiful spots, don't get me wrong, but there's some risk for an investor. There are risks that need to be acknowledged. And how you get a high yield is the rent is equal to a lot of money compared to the price of the property. Yes. So you can pay, you can buy it cheap, you know, for 200000 but if you want to rent it, it's going to cost you, say, three dollars $400 a week. So what it's saying is that people want to rent it and they're happy to pay a stupid rent, but they don't want to buy it. And so that's a or question. Why don't they want or they can't? And that's the other question. Yeah. Or, or itinerant workers. 
you know, you've got a lot of projects yeah. that are going on. You know, Tamworth, for example, mm. you know, a big surge in demand of rental, renters who are people who are just in for a big project that and might only last six months. Yeah, and look, this is the thing too. There's a bit of the danger with the negative gearing thing that you've got the the – the risk that the unsophisticated investors will just go and buy brand new so that they can negatively gear. And you get an equally unsophisticated investor who says, well, I'm going to chase yield mm. because I'm not going to negative gear anyway mm. and I'm going to go and get my 12% yield. Um. <laughs> and that could all come crashing down because yeah, you're yeah. only looking at data in isolation. Mm. So, you know, for me, I stumbled upon this. I had the, you know, the theory that what could happen, uh, a flurry of, of demand in markets that are, are turning up the best cash flow because people are publishing these reports yeah. like I was, mm. and then you suddenly say, no, don't do it. And then what you do is uh, you effectively follow through and see what happens when people stop buying, mm. prices push up, then they then they crash. Yeah. Exactly. So what you could do, we could see is, you know, a group of investors go into these markets. Not many. You only need... Only need a few. You know, maybe 10, 20. Yeah. You know, in these little suburbs, and it completely shifts the dynamic of yep. the suburb because, you know, well, who are these guys? They've just rocked up. It pushes the prices up because they create a little mini price war Correct. to get some investment properties. It pushes out all the local owner occupiers because they can't afford to pay and they're not crazy enough. Going, I could have bought that house last year for 200 and now yeah. it's 250. Yes. So they won't pay it. And then what happens is the investors push the prices up, which creates more rental supply. And then what happened to rents? Go down. Pushes rents down. And then you've got the big catastrophic risk. Is that rent high because of X project? And if that was the case, then that, that rent goes from $400 a week back to 200 which is the locals, and then that's no longer high Well, yielding. actually, it goes to 180 Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> you've got yeah. all these investors in the market. And so that's kind of what's going to happen. And, um, you know, I, I think it's kind of like commercial property. You see a lot of um, buyers agents, you know, now becoming – because yields becoming more conscious, you know, mm. don't buy residential, buy commercial. Then um, I can get a seven or eight percent yield on commercial property, and when it's when it's not vacant, when it's not vacant, and those commercial leases, if you haven't tried to re-lease a commercial lease, ah, uh, maybe understand. It's not like just throwing it on domain and you know renting it out. Oh, I could be sitting um, there for six, twelve months vacant, even longer, or oh. even longer, you know. Oh, and there's, if, there's a there's a a bank, uh, an old, you know, a lot of banks exited those beautiful mm. you know, corner buildings. And uh, our, uh, yeah, it's it's the full lease sign up near home in Newcastle. It's still there and it's been two years. Ouch. Somebody's yeah. paying a mortgage. Yeah. Every week we hear incredible stories of the dumb things property buyers do. Dumb things that end up costing a whole lot of money and or creating a whole lot of stress. Mistakes that can be avoided. Please, Kent, can you give us an example of a property Dumbo? We can all learn what not to do from these stories. Oh, I've got two great oh. Dumbos. So I surveyed the JLL valuations team last week and I said, I need a Dumbo story. Mm-hmm. And I got two that come back. And one, <laughs> one's a poo story. It's, it's, you know, you've got to have a poo story every now and then. Yeah. So what this is, is um, somebody who was buying a property went to their solicitor and paid a lot of money to get clauses added to pick up the dog poo before they purchased the property. <laughs> now, it probably would have taken me five minutes with a little shovel to, to clean, but they went to the expense of getting it added through this. Someone solicitor. hates dogs. 
So that was the first one. And the second one was that was someone at an auction that um, uh, outbid themselves not once, twice, and paid 40K over what they could have bought the property for. Yeah, that's a common one. Yeah, it's a common I knew you'd say that, but that's why I brought along the poo one because you probably haven't yeah. heard that twice. one. Twice. That's hilarious. I mean, back in episode two, Damien Cooley talks about yeah. people bidding against themselves and and he was saying even in one of the one of the auctions that he had actually said to the to the woman or guy, you know, do you realise you're actually about to buy the property? You don't actually need to increase your offer. <laughs> oh, surprise, you know. Or maybe, oh yeah. Anyway, well, in saying that, it it wouldn't surprise me that you know sometimes people are paying a lot of money for a house, and the last thing they want to do is when they buy that house to walk in and see it, and it changes their whole demeanour. I've had a client who's That's bought cool. a house and um. You know, it's not poo on the floor, but it's been poo in the other places. Um, and that really? ruined their day. What? What they left in the... Well, it was still in the toilet, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry to finish on that note. Oh, I'm talking a $1.4 million house. Yes. Someone's forgot to flush the toilet. Oh, dear. And someone had... And they, well, they walked had a in And it was sitting there. And, you know, right, I yeah. called them up because I always do like a, you know, congratulations, you know, it's good. How are you feeling? You know, you got the keys. Yeah, I've got the keys. <laughs> They didn't flush the toilet. <laughs> <laughs> and so, um, <laughs> yeah. But I mean, it's, it's quite common though when you buy these, buy a house, is it's not like you're buying, you're moving into a rental property a lot of the time. Like the cleans are, you know, there's mess and there's, Do you, know, you know. It's funny. I know. Look, often the case, I know when I was a selling agent, I'd yeah. be doing a pre-settlement inspection with with the buyers and I, you always got that sort of sinking feeling because, yeah, no What's house left? looks as good yeah. when it's empty, mm. you know, and, and the furniture's moved and you're like, oh, yeah, do you need to paint behind that? Yeah. But you look at um, the, 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 the settled price versus the contract price or the original offer and, and there's often a lot of them that have got that few hundred dollar variation which is a cleaning cost. Oh, mm. well, you know, weirdly enough, you don't have to clean your house. Yeah. Um, you do when you rent, vacate as a tenant. Mm. You don't as a buyer, <laughs> as a seller. And, in fact, just this morning before coming here, I went to a pre-settlement inspection with some clients and it was a beautiful old home that needs, will be beautiful again. Right. <laughs> will be beautiful again. And, um, you know, it, it's funny because the owners, it's a deceased estate, but they've, they've, they'd actually cleaned it and all the rest of it, but it needs a lot of work and mm. it's, it's going to be an amazing home. But it, it made me laugh because, you know, our clients, it, it's one of the few pre-settlement inspections where, you know, you don't have to remind people, remember what you bought, remember, mm, yeah. because when you got your furniture in here and everything, It'll it's going to be as beautiful mm. as it was when you bought it. But this one is just as bad, mm. and they knew that. <laughs> it just it makes me laugh because they're actually going to move into it and sort of have it renovated around them, Ooh, which yeah. is pretty brave. Right. Yeah. But they're really excited about it, and and <laughs> they've actually literally got a queue. Uh, sorry, uh, a crew coming in this afternoon to start working on all the all the walls, basically. And then they're sort of moving in a couple of days afterwards. Then they're going to. I think start. that's the right strategy. I mean, a client settling next week. And he was asking, he's in rental, and he's like, when should I send the, you know, the the lease, you know, cancellation? I was like, give yourself a couple of weeks, mate. You know, just get your cleaners in there, tidy yeah. it up. Don't want to move into it straight because, you know, it is an older house and, you know, it's going to take it, you know, you want to make it a little bit nicer before you start throwing all your furniture in. Yeah. Give it a good clean. Thanks, Kent. Really appreciate Thank it. Thank you. Thank you. Another good chat. We want to make you a better elephant rider, and this week's elephant rider training is... Well, we talked about the dangers in using AVMs or automated valuation models, and I also 
mentioned about a free course that I've got, which we'll put the uh, links in the show notes. But one thing I want to do here is talk about how can you use one of these AVMs. So say your broker or your bank hands you one of these property reports. Now, the first thing I would do is get a big black fat texter and cross out the recommended price. Don't even look at it, in fact, because we've talked about anchoring bias many times in this podcast. And once you see that, it's really difficult to unsee it. So I would cross that out. Just force yourself not to actually look at the price recommendation. Go straight to the page where it comes up with the recent sales because that is the most important thing. What you want to do is use this as a starting point. Look at those recent sales and say, which of those do you really think are comparable with the property that you're looking at buying? Get online, get onto realestate.com.au or domain.com.au. You can go in, they've both got sold sections in their portals. Most of the real estate agents have got sold sections. So if it, depending on who sold it, you might be able to get in there. I would look up the listing. I would get the floor plan. And hopefully you've seen that property yourself if you've been actively looking. But I would actually go into look at the land size, the size of the the rooms, the the overall floor plan of the property, um, the condition of it. There's a whole bunch of things that you want to look at to really work out whether that property compares with the one that you're looking at buying and whether it's inferior or superior. And so that's going to help you start to learn where the pricing fits in terms of what you know what you should or should not pay for the property you're looking at. So that's what I would do with one of those AVMs. So the boot camp this week is cross out that price. Do not look at it. It is actually going to do you more damage than good because it, they are more often than not misleading. Look at the comparable sales and start educating yourself and making educated assessments as to how those properties compare with the one that you want to buy. That is the best thing you can do with an AVM. Now, as I said, jump on the elephant in the room.com.au. The link for the free course will be there because that actually takes you through step by step all the things you do need to assess when you are comparing different properties in order to be able to work out exactly what to pay. Please join us for our next episode. A little bit of a difference this one. We're interviewing Dr. Happy. It's Dr. Tim Sharp, who is the founder of the Happiness Institute. Now, why are we doing an episode on the elephant about happiness? Well, as it turns out, happiness and property are intrinsically linked in many positive and not so positive ways. There's ways in which people look to property to deliver them happiness. There's also ways that you're sort of finding it difficult to be happy if you don't have a roof over your head. But there's uh, a lot in the science of happiness that we can learn from in terms of how we make decisions when buying property. So that's why you need to tune in and listen. Don't forget we're on all the social channels. We're on Facebook, we're on LinkedIn, we're on Twitter. Or you can connect with us on theelephantintheroom.com.au. The links are all there for you. Please connect and send us a message. We'd love to hear from you. The Elephant in the Room property podcast is recorded at the Sydney Sound Brewery. This week's podcast was recorded by John Resk, editorial by Gordy Fletcher. Until next week, don't be a dumbo. Now remember, everything we talked about on this podcast is general in nature and should never be considered to be personal financial advice. If you're looking to get advice, please seek the help of a licensed financial advisor or buyer's agent who will tailor and document their advice to your personal circumstances with a statement of advice.